welcome to the Fran Park Center for Faith and Life in Scottsdale, Arizona. This is the Out of the Park podcast series. We invite you to join us for other programming you can find on our website at www.framparkcenter.org. Join us. Welcome to the Out of the Park podcast series. I am the Reverend Dr. Mike Hegeman, Associate Director of the Park Center. We are in the midst of our series here on Holy Humans as part of our podcast series. The the Park Center itself is housed here at Pinnacle Presbyterian Church in North Scottsdale, but we really seek to reach out beyond ourselves to enter into a broader conversation about faith and public life And so we have occasional podcast series and um, ongoing series. And in this ongoing series on holy humans, we look at uh, what we might call sacred biography. How is it that we tell our stories within the church? How do we remember those who've gone on before us and as exemplars of what it means to live uh, as we are called to live in, um, in the world as people of faith? And so as part of this conversation, we've invited different uh, friends of the Park Center to join us. And this afternoon, we have with us Reverend Margot Walter, who is, uh, as, as she describes herself, a pastor, spiritual director, and then all of those other aspects of, of life. Margot, fill us in on a few more of those details. Well, a mother of three, and yeah, as of yesterday, a, a grandmother of four and a wife of 44 years, and uh, just somebody who loves engaging with my community and um, all my friends in a, in, a, in a hopefully holy way. You know, you have an interesting story yourself, and so when we, uh, calling you Reverend Margot uh, Walter is a relatively new thing. Tell us a little bit about, about that. Well, I've, I've been a God seeker my whole life, but um, I felt a call to seminary in my mid-50s after I had, I had raised my kids. I had been involved in leadership in an international prayer ministry called Moms in Touch. It rebranded as Moms in Prayer International and um, was very active in my church. I was an elder in the PCUSA and taught Sunday school and um, just uh, my life really revolved around my faith on some level. But I felt a call to seminary, and after discerning that, um, yeah, my community agreed, and, and off I went. You were trying to think about that, that kind of experience of call at that point in life. How did, your, how did your family at this point, spouse, children, how did they react to your you know, responding to that call as you did? Well, it's a good thing I did it later in life because I don't know how my husband could have handled it. But he knew that my life was really anchored in my faith walk. And um, my kids just think I'm crazy in general. Um, they, they're, they don't go to church themselves. They, they, um, I prayed for them my whole life, so they really appreciate that. But they call me God's friend. And so they, they, it, was, it was normal for them to see me kind of go take that step. But the one thing I, I didn't say is one of the reasons I first wanted to go to seminary is because I was actually working in a, in a ministry that was anchored theologically in the conservative Southern California evangelical movement. 
And for a long time, I didn't even realize that's the water I was swimming in. And so once I knew that, I realized I probably needed to go study the Bible and and the history of the church and matters such as these so I could make up my own mind about, yeah. you know, about what Scripture said. So, you know, coming to seminary, I know that each person who goes to seminary kind of re uh, has some big hurdles to overcome, but also, and some of those biggest hurdles are just kind of the aha moments about the very things you mentioned, Bible, history of the church, faith. What was what would perhaps might be one of your biggest aha moments in the seminary education? Well, it's not going to be what you expect. Because I think I already understood there was a lot of ways to, there was a lot of lenses you could use to read scripture. And there was a lot of ways to, you know, your own experience kind of sometimes um, was a lens. But, well, I had two big aha moments. One was the, the first day I walked into the lunchroom and realized, aha, I am a woman in my mid-50s and everyone else is in their 20s. So where am I going to sit? But the, the real aha moment and I'm going to talk about it later tonight, is when I uh, entered into, involuntarily, against my own will, group spiritual direction. And the aha moment came over over the time I was in those those group spiritual direction spaces of cultivating stillness and silence. And the aha moment really was there was so much chatter in my own head and heart that I wasn't tapped into. And it was keeping me from from hearing from God. So that was that was a that I shouldn't have had to go to seminary for that. I should have gotten something more out of my theological education, but truly that is the biggest aha moment I had. Well you you say you shouldn't have had to go to seminary to experience that. Many people who are listening to us and now most likely won't go to seminary, and so how do they get that? How do they get that experience you're talking about? Well, again, it's um, I, I I try to distill down what it is, how to how to explain my perspective on this. I guess what I'll say is that I see there there's a movement that's been going on for quite some time in our in our modern time in my lifetime, revolving around the um the need to pay attention to to you know it's it's our our the younger generation is all actively engaged in it they teach 3 year olds in nursery school meditation and breathing and so this this idea that if we we can eventually run out of things to ask god for cuz we talk to god and at god or study about God, uh, read about God all the time. But how much do we stop and actually listen for God and listen to our own, what, what's inside of us? Because if the Holy Spirit dwells in us, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit, then certainly the Spirit might be saying something if the Spirit could get a word in edgewise. In you, our busy world, right, right. Yeah, you, you were you were saying earlier the way you introduced yourself as a God seeker, and uh, many people might might identify, maybe not use that phrase, but they they feel that nudge. They're ser- they're searching for something greater, deeper, more meaningful, and uh, our culture 
there are there are ways of approaching that. I know that the mindfulness is one of those mm. you know, very. I don't want to say it's a catchy term right now because there's real substance in the mindfulness movement. And but how is it that you found that Christian from a Christian perspective we can contribute to this search this um, way of approaching mindfulness? What are the what are the um, you know these kind of habits? You know, we're gonna, we might call them habits of holy people mm. that move us into the, the into that space that you're talking about of attentiveness and allowing for the voice of God to find a word in edgewise in our lives. What would you how would you break that down for us? Well, I'll start just by confessing the irritation I remember feeling when I first heard the term mindfulness. I think one of the things that Christians need to do is get over that that it's not, these terms are not some sort of cultural, you know, uh, post-Christian, you know, terminology. These are mined from the Christian tradition way, way back, going all the way back to Jesus going up onto the mountainside to pray. And um, so, but if you want to know about the habits, I think um, I kind of break it down in three habits um, one is just the simple habit or, or practice, I'm going to call it. Discipline is really what it is, and it, that is of attention. I have to figure out how to pull my attention, which is really my heart and my mind, away from what's going on in, in the world and my circumstances. On, I have to be able to do it at least some. I can't do it all the time, but I need to pull it down and focus it on God. And so if, I, if we're going to call that the discipline of attention, the practice that I have used that's been very edifying and helpful is I call it butt in the chair. And I set a timer and I put my phone away and I put my rear end in a chair and I do nothing but sit. And I don't know why I started doing that. Somebody suggested it. And... And I have to be honest, it can be excruciating, it can be boring, it can be scary. But I just decided I was going to do it. And, you know, it doesn't have to be 10 minutes or it could be two minutes. But there's something, I think God honors that offering. That we, if, 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 if my heart is tuned and I'm going to sit and say, hey, what you got? Or I'm just going to sit quietly with you, God, and if nothing happens, it's okay but bit by bit by bit, I developed a greater capacity to control my own attention. And then when I want to or desire to, I can attend to God. So that's one. Another. And what mm-hmm. What do you think, before we kind of move on to the next yeah. one, where, um, where what's our greatest, um, and I can't think of a word, but inhibitor to our attention these days? What uh, What do you think is... You know, I we I think we said somewhere along the way we talked about distraction, uh, but what's what's the greatest threat or even hurdle or obstacle to attend being attentive? Well, I'll go back to um, well, I, we probably live right now in the the most stimulating environment that humanity ever has. And um, so I'm going to go back to one of the very ancient um, Christian um, teachers, of which there were many, 
way back in the movement when the early Christians were going out into the desert to become ascetics. They thought they had to, to you know, disconnect from their regular lives to get some quiet. And, you know, they're living on farms, <laughs> you know. So, and so there's this one, what we call a desert mother, way back in that time period, who advocated for um, going into your cell, your C-E-L-L, um, your, your nook, your quiet place, because, um, and, and basically that the cell could teach you if you would just go into it. And she called this practice sitting on the eggs because she knew and wrote about how the world can be overstimulating and that we had to endure the boredom or the, um, I don't know, the, the, the lack of, um, of stimulation and, and just persevere through it in order to find that. I use a snow globe sometimes when I talk about this. And, you know, I shake it up and I, um, there's usually something in most snow globes inside. And that, you know, the, the glitter's all sparkling and you can't see. And then if you just wait and wait, eventually the dust settles and you can see. And so I, that's how I think about the eyes and ears of our hearts have to somehow slow down. We can go back to scripture to that famous psalm of Psalm 4610, where the psalmist records God saying, be still and know that I am God. And I went and looked at that Hebrew term and it like literally means like be quiet, <laughs> might, might mean shut up. So that's, you know, I, I think people have always struggled with distraction and um, and we probably have the worst time of it now, but that doesn't mean that there's something so much better because I think most people realize that the distractions that we have don't satisfy. It can it can get it, it's so unsatisfying. It's like eating donuts all the time. Eventually, I think we all yearn for something more, more nutritious or more tasty. You you used a word or a phrase earlier when you talked about when you first at seminary when you first began exploring these practices you said unwill you said almost said unwillingly you you entered into this or against my will so there was something you said and uh, what was that about in a sense of how does that how does will how does that sense of our agreeing to show up uh, play a part of this well I was. My faith life at that time was very focused on praying scripture. And one, one, I didn't learn about scripture in my very kind of sanitary Southern social Methodist church growing up. Um, I, in my 30s, when I started having kids and just realized that I, how can I protect these precious things that I've been given, I began to learn how to pray scripture for my kids. And we would pray t together out loud as women. And we would agree in prayer. And it was this beautiful thing. And it also was a wonderful way to process your anxiety as a parent. But um, that's what I was kind of, that was how I was used to dealing with God, kind of telling God what I needed. And, you know, we would praise God and we would confess and then we would thank God and then we would give God our requests. But that's kind of what I was used to. I was in a real rut. And so when I ended up in this room with a couple of what we called ourselves the the old gals, you know, we all found each other in seminary, about five of us. We, um, the spiritual director, and in Princeton, by the way, they, they offered spiritual direction, which is so brilliant of them. And one of my friends had said, hey, come. 
So we, we come in, the director lights the candle, she bangs the gong, and then she says, okay, now we're going to, and she, I think she read a poem, and then she said, I'm going to hold 10 minutes of stillness, and we're going to sit together. And I don't think any of us had sat in stillness for 10 minutes together with other people. And so I felt a very strong resistance to that. I thought I already knew how to approach God and that we were just fine. And it turned out that resistance is really coming from me. But I think I, I just I think that's something I want to say to people is that, yeah, you're going to feel a resistance because the truth is, I think we're also afraid to go into mysterious, um, um, uncontrolled places with God. I mean, the Holy Spirit is pretty scary when you think about it. I mean, all you have to do is read Scripture, and the Spirit's either shooting out like lightning or knocking people off their donkeys and blinding them, or, or our own Christian tradition has the Pentecostal tradition. I mean, if you want to get freaked out, go look at YouTube under Slain in the Spirit. Um and, and not to make fun, because I think this is a valid experience for some people. But, but um, I, for instance, I've never spoken in tongues, and I know lots of people that do. But the spirit is um, a lot wilder, maybe, than the God of Scripture. You know, we have we have Christian traditions that uh, counter to the those outward those those kind of more extrovert expressions of the spirit. We have the Quaker traditions, which do. Mm-hmm their worship service is characterized as being an hour of silence. And if the spirit moves, the people people respond, you know, uh, they, they respond in the moment, but often very it's very sparse in that sense of we never know when the spirit's going to move and, uh, you know, motivate somebody to speak uh, a word of reconciliation, of love, of insight, and all of that. So, Can I just toss in that yeah. I've been in those services, and I think what they say is, only speak if you can improve upon the silence. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. <laughs> right. And so uh, we, you know, you identified for us or, or earlier saying that that willingness is a really a part yeah. of this uh, habit. I mean, willing, uh, but talk about willingness as a habit. How do you develop and how do you develop that as a discipline so that you can practice it? Well, um, I, I like to use Mary as a, the mother of Jesus, as a is a is a good mentor for us in this, um, we've kind of you know jettisoned Mary out. You know, we do. I, I don't. Maybe Protestants are a little nervous about Mary because of the, the Catholic tradition that's added so much to Scripture. But I love her um, because you know one of the one of the practices that I've engaged in is called Ignatian Lectio Divina. And it's the it's the practice you can do with other people, and someone reads a scripture out loud, and we use our imaginations to try and show up there, and try and be in that moment, and just see what shows up. Again, always trusting, praying that the Spirit will come, that the Spirit will help us understand, that the Spirit will help us see. We're not just doing it as an imaginative exercise. And Mary, who's this teenage girl, she's a nobody you know, an angel comes in or the presence of God and, and she's terrified. And, 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 you know, so he, the angel explains and and then she just asks that. So how is this going to be? How, how in the world can this be? And he answers the Holy Spirit's going to come on you and overshadow you. And, and, you know, and she says, well, okay, let it be as you've said. And that kind of willingness to me is 
is extraordinary, given what she was really facing as a human being, as a woman, who I guess understood she was going to get pregnant in a place that stones women for that. So I just like, maybe there's a childlikeness in that, in just saying, well, this is too too big for me. And most of us don't like to to admit that. When you mentioned these initial experiences with uh, approaching God in stillness, you mentioned four or five other women being present with you. What is the what is the advantage uh, of you, you saying we can discipline ourselves at home? You say get your get your rear end in a in a seat, put the <laughs> timer on, and it sounds like you're alone. But these other experiences had had uh, had others involved. What is the what is it? How you know? What's the spiritual discipline in doing doing this attentiveness, willingly showing up, but doing it with with others? Yeah. Well, one thing is that I only well, I use like interpreting scripture as an example. I can read scripture for the rest of my life and only get out of it what I can. But when I um, talk to other people about their interpretations of Scripture, they come out of their own traditions or their own experiences, then they add such a richness to me. And it's the same way with community. In a way, the discipline of community, and I mean it that way, this isn't about worshiping in church or going to Wednesday night Bible study. This is, this is putting um, ourselves into community to seek the Spirit, to seek um, hearing from God, but we need community. One reason is so that we don't go off the rails. And I love this um, this quote, um, Thomas Merton. I'm going to pull up this book that I've been reading. That um, the the woman who the professor who helped launch Princeton Seminary's new Center for Contemplative Leadership, which is focused on equipping students with the ability to um, approach um, their faith and leadership contemplatively. And so she sent me this book, and it's just wonderful. It's called Contemplation and Community, so there's the pitch for this book. But um, Thomas Merton spoke about why we must be in community, and he says the most dangerous person in the world is the contemplative who is guided by nobody. He trusts his own visions he obeys the attractions of an interior voice, but will not listen to other men. And he goes on to say that um, this person identifies the will of God with anything that basically makes him feel good. And so we have to be very careful that to put ourselves willingly into community and trust that the Spirit's also speaking to others. And um, and then that's kind of one one reason, the guardrails. But I've had so much fellowship and and relationship building by being by doing these practices um uh, lectio divina and i mentioned ignatian lectio divina but benedictine lectio divina where you actually study words you study scripture or emmaus walks but it builds community and trusted fellowship let's stop for just one moment is to say lectio divina it, Lectio is reading, yeah. Divina Divine. So we have a sense of a divine way or a holy way of reading uh, reading texts and allowing that text to have... I almost, one of the ways I say is have, allowing the scriptural text to have its way with us yes. in a sense of that sense of that's that divine... It's a, because it includes all of this, a willingness to to be to a list, not just to listen to scripture, but allow scripture to 
as uh, to be the vehicle by which God in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit show up and shape us, right, and form us. And so it's a way of, uh, that I understand it, is an attentiveness to text. And so that I love that too is that, yes, we can contemplate on our own, we can experience God our own, but part of the community of the whole, the holy way is the community of voices we find in Scripture and all of those who have interpreted it in the last 2,000 years and those in our midst and those in our midst, friends, family, church members, other people that you you know that we gather to together to say, "Help me discern. Tell me what you know and what what is true for you." And so all of these, you know, as we put these together, we we've been, we've been seeking after this idea of how do we identify a holy human and how do I identify? Am I holy? And so I think as we kind of we're kind of pulling our time here together to a close, but to ask you that question. How do you? How does one know that she is holy or he is holy? And just going to say is, or is that a consciousness that comes? I mean, that's only identified later. But how do you? How do you know that you're somehow connected with holiness? Well, I think that we're holy humans when we receive the Holy Spirit, but not just receive the Holy Spirit, which we do at baptism. But there's more, I think. To, to receive the Holy Spirit and live in the power of the Holy Spirit, to be a temple of the Holy Spirit, to embody God's love and compassion in the world. It's not enough just to grab the Spirit and then go about living our daily lives. The Spirit will change us. And one of the kind of play on words that I love is maybe we should be less worried about being holy and more worried about being whole because I believe that the Spirit does kind of work like a glue in us to kind of glue together all our broken pieces so that we're still broken people, but we're kind of glued together. But we have to have that constant presence of the Spirit to keep us whole. There's no ultimate healing in this life. And so we say, come Holy Spirit again and again, so that we can live, you know, this this life of wholeness and be blessing, yeah, you, you know, know in the world that um, all three of those words you used come from the same root word. So healing, wholeness, and holy, you know, that's my nerdy side coming mm. out, but come from the same Anglo-Saxon root, hal, which is in the midst that, so that those things, things are, I think, interdependent. Mm-hmm. Our healing, which is points towards God's wholeness in us, uh, really, really is showing our holiness. I mean, that sense of, and it's not our holiness, it's God's creating wholeness and and how God does that which is uh, which is you know puts us on this path of holiness you know so I love it I love it all three to draw all that together mm-hmm. so Margo I appreciate your uh, spending time with us today and um, to be part of our podcast series which takes what we do here uh, kind of on site you know out into the world and so we your you know your voice and your insights are joining a, a larger conversation and so we really appreciate your time uh, and uh, you know, joining joining with us to share in this project, and we go out and might even call a ministry. Well, I'm so glad to have been here. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to share what's really important to me. We hope that you will join us uh, for future episodes here of Holy Humans, as well as other series we have in our podcast series, Out of the Park. Thanks for joining us at our Out of the Park podcast series. 
you like this program and would like to check out more, go to our website at www.framparkcenter.org. Thank you.